Hey, you're listening to a sermon from Ketchikan Church of the Nazarene. Thanks for listening. If you'd like more information about our church, you can visit ktnnaz.org, visit us on Facebook, just search Ketchikan Naz, or you can download our free app from the iPhone store or the Google Play store, just search Ketchikan Naz. Thanks for visiting. Hope the Word of God speaks to you today. Something exciting going on downstairs today, I heard, but I'm not going to give away the details. No, okay. Um, but it's going to be exciting, and I almost wished I was down there for it. <laughs> so, um, not that I don't like being with you guys, but I heard there was an edible. And so, um, <laughs> we ought to do snack up here sometime. They get snack down there all the time. Um, yeah, right? Amen. Yeah, okay. We'll work on that. Uh, I'm not a stranger to that. We can do that. Um, we are starting a new series today called Simply Seven, okay? Um, and that could mean a lot of things, uh, but we are going to be focusing on the seven letters in Revelation. We're going to tackle just the first couple chapters of the book of Revelation because a lot of people freak out about the book and they're like, Revelation, that weird book at the end of the Bible. We think it's weird and we don't read it or we don't understand it, but we're going to tackle a little bit of it, hopefully pull the veil back a little bit. Um, but I want to ask you guys a question. Growing up in your household, and, and maybe you don't want to answer this out loud, I don't know. Some of you might, some of you might not. Growing up in your household, who was the one that was in charge? Like the final say, like in your household, the buck stopped with who? Anybody want to? Mom. Mom? <laughs> Mom. <laughs> right? I'm getting a lot of moms. Any dads that had the bucks? Any dads, any moms? Any, anybody else? Okay, so um, it's kind of split 50-50 almost, okay? In my household, I'm not going to say because my parents watch this. So, um, <laughs> um, so, so the buck stops with somebody in your household, right? So it didn't matter what went on, whether the arguments or the discipline that went on. There was one person that spoke for the totality of the family and said, this is how it's going to be. Okay, and, uh, and so in families, we understand that. And in the Bible, it's the exact same way. The book of Revelation is one that gives us a great glimpse about who has the authority. The buck stops with one voice, and it's the voice of Jesus. And the book of Revelation gives us that kind of picture that when it comes to the family of God and who the buck stops with, it's Jesus. He is the head of the church and he alone has the authority to speak into the church. And so the first thing we've, I don't know if I, Matt, I'm not boarding for some reason very well. Uh, sorry. If you can get us jump started, it might work. Uh, maybe take it out of remote mode and then put it back in. Um, and uh, let me know when you've done that. And I'll... No. I did. All right, okay, so uh, the next slide, if you could. Um, Jesus has the authority to speak to his church. That's the main picture that we want to take away today. If you forget about everything else, I want you to remember this. Jesus has the authority to speak to his church, and that's what we're going to read in the book of Revelation. Um, but Revelation, like I said, can be a little bit overwhelming, right? Like you've maybe, anybody familiar with the Left Behind series? Yeah, okay. Um, and any of you watch the movies, okay? Any of you watch anything on Discovery Channel that's like the apocalypse is coming and it's got like asteroids and, you know, all kinds of death and destruction and freaky stuff. And so we've gotten to the point in our culture where the book of Revelation is synonymous with, oh no, right? What's going to happen? How's it going to work out? Am I going to suffer? All of the terrible, scary things that culture has told us about Revelation. 
And yet what I want to challenge us to look at is the book of Revelation is not a book of doom and gloom and apocalypse in the term of like earth exploding, okay? But the term apocalypse, which is the title, the term revelation simply just means a revealing. Thank you, Matt. Um, So what we want to look at is how Christ is revealing himself to us, how God is revealing something that we can know and understand about him and how the world is going to work and how we are to work with the world. So if you would imagine, the book of Revelation is like you are sitting in a movie theater that had the curtains, or maybe a play, okay? And it's got these curtains that are up. And as the play is about to start, you reveal what is on stage by opening the curtains. And that is what Jesus is doing for us in the book of Revelation. He's pulling back the curtains, and he's allowing us to see a little bit about what is going on. And it is going to tell us that Jesus has the authority to speak to his church. This is a book of comfort. This is a book of encouragement. This is a book of challenge to persevere because ultimately God is upholding everything. And we are going to read that in this very first chapter of Revelation. Um, So here's what I want to do. I want to pray because we are about to dive into Revelation. um, And then I'm going to read the very first chapter of Revelation to us. And we are going to ask God to teach us something about who he is and how we are in relation to him as we read. Lord, um, as we read from your Bible this morning, your book, your word, what you have given us to understand who you are and how you relate to us and who we are in relation to you. Um, Would you just clear our hearts and minds of anything that we bring to the table about our understanding about you, anything that we bring to the table uh, about your word? And would you just in this moment speak to us simply from your book? Would you reveal to us who you are? Would you teach us something new? Would you remove culture's idea of you and replace it with your idea of you, who you very are at the very core? Lord, we ask that we'd be encouraged and challenged, that we would find comfort, but we would also find uh, impetus to become uh, pursuers of you as we read your word. Speak truth into our hearts this morning, I pray, and may we find comfort uh, in this word. We pray this in your name. Amen. If you would and are able to stand for the reading of the word this morning, I would ask you to do so. Revelation chapter 1, we're going to read the entirety of it. It sounds long, but it's not. It's only 20 verses, and it's quite good. Revelation chapter 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to the servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ of all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of all the kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes on earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. 
I, John, your brother, and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, I was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus, but I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And then I turned around to see who was speaking to me. And upon turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands was one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe and a golden sash around his chest. And the hairs of his head were white like wool, white like snow. And his eyes were like flames of fire, and his feet were like burnished bronze refined in the furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. And in his right hand... He held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though I were dead. But he reached down and he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, but behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. So write, therefore, the things that you have seen, the things that are, and the things that are to take place after this. And as for the mystery of the seven stars that you see in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands around me, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is the word of God for us. Be blessed as you hear and receive it. You may be seated. So we're only one chapter in, right? And already we're getting mysterious descriptions of things and code names like seven stars and seven lampstands. And thank goodness for Jesus because he breaks it all down right at the very beginning for us. Now, um, let's, um, let's tackle this in this way. Any of you readers, like you like books? Some of you. Okay, that's great. So hopefully this analogy will work for some of you. Okay. Um, imagine you go to a bookstore. We don't really have... We have one bookstore that I know of in town, but imagine you're at a bookstore, okay, and you go and you're browsing and you see a book and you're like, I wonder if this book is any good. So you pull it off the bookshelf, you flip it to the back of the cover, right, and it's got that little descriptive section on the back of the cover, okay, and you read that descriptive section and you're like, yeah, that sounds like a pretty good book. I wonder who wrote it or if I know if they wrote anything else they read. So you open it up and you read the about the author section written by and you kind of scan that section um, and you realize, oh, okay, I, I don't really know that. Maybe I know the name. The, the author sounds kind of interesting. Grew up in Puyallup, has 12 dogs, lives with his child, you know, all these stuff you read. And then you get to the end, you're like, it lists the other books. Oh, oh, I recognize these other titles. These are pretty good books. Okay, I'm going to flip a couple more pages before I decide to read or buy this book. Let me look at the prologue and see what the prologue has to say. Because you get a little snapshot about what's about to happen in the book. And so you read the prologue. It's short. It's a page. And you read through it and you go, yeah. Oh, I'm intrigued, but it left me with a cliffhanger. i got to read the rest of this. Okay? That's kind of like the first chapter of the book of Revelation. It has a little summary, like the back page of uh, a book. It has an about the author section, so you can get an idea of who's writing it. And it's got a little prologue section that leaves you with a cliffhanger wondering, oh, what's going to happen next? So I want to break that down for you, chapter one, just like that. So, um... 
if you will follow along with me, uh, verses 1 through 3, okay? Verses 1 through 3 of chapter 1 of Revelation are what I would consider the back cover of a book, okay? It basically uh, gives you a summary of the entire book of Revelation in short order. Everything you need to know is right here. It is a revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to Jesus to show his servants the things that are going to take place. Boom. You've got the entire picture of Revelation in one sentence. It's from Jesus to the world about the things that are going to happen. You got your point blank summary right there. It reveals that Jesus is the author, that God the Father has given Jesus the authority to speak these things, that we are to receive it, and that a guy named John is tasked with writing it down and sharing it with the world. But it also includes this really beautiful blessing um, in Revelation chapter 3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. I like that one, okay? Because I'm reading it aloud right now. Blessed am I for reading aloud the words of the prophecy. But it also continues, and blessed are those who hear and who keep it. So by the very act of you hearing the word of God this morning, you are being blessed by God to receive his word. Beyond that, the word hear doesn't just mean take it auditorily in your eardrums and then forget about it in the mush that happens here. Okay? It means to take it in and digest it and then act upon it. The actual um, Old Testament word for hear means to hear and do. It's a two-part word, which is why in the New Testament they say, don't just be hearers of the word, but be doers of the word, because that really means that you heard it. Like when you're growing up and your parents say, um, I asked you to clean your room, didn't you hear me? And you're like, I heard you, but they're like, you didn't hear me because you didn't do it. Okay, so to hear and to do. So we get this beautiful picture of what's going to come. John is writing a book. It's from Jesus to us, and we are blessed to receive it. That is a great summary back cover. Okay, so that's what you need to know when you're starting the book of Revelation. But hopefully that draws you in a little bit because you want to know how am I going to be blessed by hearing? What am I going to hear that is going to bless me? So as you flip in to um, this about the author section, it's uh, verses 4 through 8. You get this picture of Jesus, okay? Um, this is uh, starting of the letter, and it's addressed to the seven churches, okay? So let me just, let me just stop here for a second. Uh, grace uh, and peace to you, John says, to the seven churches that are in Asia. Now, you're going to hear, as we go through Revelation, seven a lot. In fact, seven is a lot of places in Scripture. Seven is a really beautiful number. God uses the number seven to teach us something significant. Um, seven is a significant number because it was the days of creation, right? Seven days of creation, six technically, and on the seventh he what? Rested, right? He was establishing for us the covenant of Sabbath rest. That there is a period in time for God and for us to enjoy Sabbath rest. God says this is a holy thing, the day of rest. He also says it's uh, covenantal. Um, the circumcision, the covenant of circumcision in the Old Testament was performed on the seventh day. Okay, God is saying there is a covenant here. I am inviting you into relationship with me, and I want it to be done on the day of the seven. Now, um, why is this uh, so important? Seven is the number of perfection, the number of completion. That's why God rested, because it was done. It was perfect. It means um, a completion or a wholeness or a totality. It is perfect. Um, that's why culturally, 
people say seven is the lucky number because down through time, God has said this is the number of perfection, of completeness, of holiness, of the totality. We can rest because it's done. Um, in the Old Testament, you'll read a lot about the number seven. There are seven altars. There were seven sacrifices. There were seven animals. There were seven everything in the process of redemption. Seven, 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 seven. And the more you see seven stacked on itself in a passage, God is hammering home the idea of completion and totality. So when John says to the seven churches, he's saying not just like, the seven specific churches, but we need to read this, that there literally were seven churches, right? Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, okay, so forth and so on. You've got seven churches, and John's here on Patmos, okay? And this is modern-day Turkey, just so you have your, your bearings here. Um, but what we need to understand is Jesus is saying, write these things down and send them to these seven churches, but I am speaking to the seven churches, the total church, the church universal, every church that is, was, and is to be, I am speaking to everybody, all of the body of Christ in totality, the complete seven church, right? So that is why we titled the series seven, because he is speaking to the church. But as he wrote the letters, he's saying, I'm going to identify seven specific churches for a specific reason. This is a massive trade route, okay? So there were multitudes of other churches in this area at this time. But if John wrote these words and sent them to these churches, they would be disseminated across. Everybody, Church Universal, would get a chance to hear the word. But he is speaking to the universal church. Now, what's interesting about these seven churches um, is while they were on massive trade routes, they were also centers of imperial religion. So as Jesus is writing to his church, he is going to um, confront and challenge the churches in those specific cities to not fall prey to the culture, to not fall prey to the things that are going on in their world, but to fall to what Jesus says, the authority that Jesus has to speak into the life of the church. So John says, to the church universal, here are the letters that we are about to write. And then he introduces the author. He continues, to him who, um, who is and was and was who is to come, from the seven spirits who are before the throne, from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth. He's listing off the qualifications of Jesus, the descriptions of Jesus, okay? Um, he's saying, listen, he is to come, he was to come, he is um, eternal, that's what he's saying, he is all-encompassing of all time, was, is, is to come. Um, he is outside of time and exists in that way. The seven spirits that are before the throne, it doesn't mean there are seven spirits before the throne. It means there is one total and complete Holy Spirit. And he is demonstrating it that way. He's saying there is a completeness of the Holy Spirit that worships with God and is God. He is also the firstborn of the dead. This phrase, like, tripped me up for many, many years. What does it mean that Jesus is the firstborn from the dead? It means this. He lived. He died. He came back to life. And he will never die again. Okay? And that is what it means when he is the firstborn of the dead. He is the first one that will never die again. Okay? Um, and then it continues. He is the ruler over all kings. These are like um, qualifications of the author. Why does Jesus have the ability to speak to the church universal? Oh, I don't know. Because he exists outside of time. Because he created all things. 
because he will never die again, because um, he is Lord over all of the kings on earth, he has the authority to speak into the world and the church. But it continues as if that's not enough. He, um, he freed us. He loves us. He freed us from our sins by his blood. He made us a kingdom to him, priests unto him, so that we might be holy. He has the glory and the dominion forever and ever, and he's coming again so that all people, people who loved him and didn't love him, all people will recognize his authority one day. Um, so here's the thing. Um, Jesus, uh, here's the slide here. To him who loves us, freed us from our sins, made us a kingdom. This is the gospel in Revelation. So if you look for the gospel in every book, the good news, what tells us our position with Jesus and how he made us relational with him, he loves us enough to free us from our sins by dying on the cross, shedding his blood, so that he could make us a kingdom of holy priests for God the Father, so Jesus gets all the glory and dominion forever and ever and ever, for always and always, period, the end, okay? Um, that's the gospel. God loves you enough that he would die for you. He is the only one that could do that and did that. Therefore, he is the only one that has the ability to speak with authority into the church. And then it continues. Um, chapter 9, or verse 9, sorry, not, we're not jumping to chapter 9. Verse 9. John continues to write his story, and he says, listen, I was, I was banished to Patmos, and I was standing on the island, and I was worshiping Jesus one day, and then all of a sudden, while I was worshiping, I hear a voice behind me, and I'm like, that is a really loud voice, and it says to me something very specific, write down what you see and send it to the seven churches, and I'm all like, uh, well, I'm not seeing much in front of me but the island of Patmos, so I'm going to turn around and see what I see, and when he turns around, he sees seven lampstands. Now, in the Old Testament, in the uh, tabernacle, the way they worshipped, there was one lampstand with seven candles on it. Now, in this instance, there are seven lampstands, each with their candle on it. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, there was one like the Son of Man. And this is, what, this is what John describes to see. He sees one like the Son of Man. Now, let's back up for a second. The lampstand um, in the Holy of Holies represented the people of God, the nation of Israel, the church as it was at the time. And it was lit to represent the light of God with the church. And in the Holy of Holies, the only light that existed was the light of that fire. And then you'd go one step further and God's Shekinah glory, the glory of God, was behind the big temple veil, okay? And so before you entered the temple veil, there was this lampstand with the light on it that represented God's light. But only one person got to go into the Holy of Holies, and that was the high priest once a year. And he had to be dressed just right. He had to have just the right sacrifices to atone for his sins so that when he went in, the Shekinah glory didn't kill him, right? Because God's glory is pretty powerful. Now... John turns around and he sees seven lampstands representing the church universal and one like the Son of Man standing in the midst of the church. Now there's something significant here to us. Jesus stands in the midst of his church. Jesus is actively part of his church. He's not somewhere way far away. He is present in the midst of the church. And as we read this description of Jesus, we're going to learn that he is the light of the lampstand. It is not they have their own fire burning. Jesus is the light amidst the churches. Okay, so here's what it says. One like the Son of Man, which is a messianic title, 
Throughout the New Testament, Jesus is called the Son of Man. It's a messianic title that he received himself. So we're seeing the Messiah standing amidst the church who um, wore a robe and a sash. This is describing the high priesthood garments that would have been worn in the Old Testament um, before they entered the Holy of Holies. A long robe with a golden sash around his chest. We are saying that Jesus is the Messiah. He is also the high priest, the only one who could enter into the Holy of Holies for our sins. And he has um, white hair on his head, like wool, like white like snow, like the whitest white you could imagine. It symbolizes his wisdom and his purity, his holiness, his unstained nature. And it continues, his eyes were like flames of fire because he is the light of the church and his gaze is piercing. It finds out sin in the hearts of everybody. You cannot stand the presence of God's vision. And then his feet are described like burnished bronze. Now, the basins in the temple sacrifice area were made of burnished bronze refined in the fire. And what this tells us is that Jesus is the one who on our sins were laid, but also the bronze strength of bronze burnished in the fire is strong enough to crush enemies, strong enough to stamp out sin, strong enough to stand the test of time. Jesus has a firm foundation which he stands upon. And his voice, scripture tells us, um, is like the raging waters. Any of you ever stood next to like a massive waterfall? And you're just, it's awe-inspiring, isn't it? To hear the force of water that comes down. Now what John is saying is, imagine all of the waters of the world cascading off a massive waterfall. And that's just kind of scratching the surface about what God's voice is like. The power that he speaks with, mountains tremble and shake, right? At the voice of God. And in his right hand, which is, if someone's your right hand man, what does that mean? Psychic. Yeah, they're your psychic, they're your number one. They're the one that has the authority to speak for you, right? So if you can send someone as your right hand man to do the business that needs to be done. So when Jesus is holding out his right hand, he's using his hand of authority. He's extending his hand of power. He's saying, in my right hand of power are the seven stars of the seven churches. Now, it says that the stars are the angels of the seven churches. Now, there's a lot of theology there. We're not going to get into that today. Okay? It basically, at base level, regardless of how you view those seven angels, it means there are seven representatives of the church. Okay? Now, I like this to believe, because I'm a pastor, and I talked this over with another pastor friend of mine, and we're just, we like to believe this. I can't fully support it, but I'm going to, this is my personal view, that Jesus is saying, with the authority of his hand, he upholds the messenger of the church, so that every church has maybe a pastor who God lifts up in his authoritative right hand to help lead and guide and encourage the church. Because I'm not the pastor of the church. Jesus is the pastor of the church. But he helps me and enables me to preach the gospel to you and encourage you. So I like to believe that God's lifting out his hand of authority to encourage me to continue to minister to you guys. Whether or not that's totally biblical, I don't know. But it makes me feel good. That's my personal <laughs> opinion. Okay, Take it for what it is. I like it that God can encourage me that way. So he's extending his hand of authority for the messengers of the churches. 
And then from his mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword, right? Which is the word of God, right? We're, we're maybe not talking about a literal sword. I taught youth group many years ago, and we talked about this passage, and we did a very summary view of Revelation, and God bless teenagers, but they get about 10% of what you say sometimes, and not sequential 10%, okay? And so I had a parent call me and say, why did you teach my child that Jesus is coming back with a sword and going to cut his head off? <laughs> no, 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 that's not at all what I taught. It, there was like multiple pieces of information and discussion that they lumped together because at some point they heard something and thought that that strung it all together for truth. And so I had to dispel that knowledge. Jesus is not coming back like that. He is coming back with the word of God, the very breath of God, the thing that breathes life into us. And it is sharper than a two-edged sword because it carves to our hearts to get sin out. It pierces us so that we can't go any further without feeling the word of God upon our lives. And beyond that, Jesus' face is like the sun, the full Shekinah glory on display. And this is what John sees. And so get this picture. John walked with Jesus, right? He talked with Jesus, right? He hung out with Jesus. In, <coughs> in fact, it says, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> that John is the disciple that Jesus loved, Right? And so, as John is describing Jesus, who is the firstborn of the dead and who freed us by his blood and who made us a kingdom and holy priests and rules over us, he's talking about the guy that he walked with. He knows that firsthand, but then he turns around and he sees that same Jesus in full Shekinah glory, his face glowing like the sun and this robe and the shining white hair and this voice like many waters. And it's like he's seeing Jesus for the first time as Jesus is really meant to be seen. And I think that's pretty cool. So here John has described to us the Jesus he knew and walked with and the Jesus as Jesus exists in heaven, who are the same Jesus, by the way. And he's saying, this is the guy who is telling me to write to you, and he has the authority to do that because have you seen behind me? Have you seen what I see? You can't see what I'm writing for you, what I see, because he told me to do that, and this dude's pretty powerful and pretty cool, and you need to know that he has the authority, thank you, <clears throat> to speak on behalf of us. Pardon me while I take a drink of this beautiful water my wife has brought me. Ah, blessed are you who offer me a drink of water in the name of Jesus. <laughs> Oh, that's good stuff. Okay. All right. Now, here's where we get to the prologue. So we've learned about the author, right? Jesus is almighty, all-powerful, saved us from our sins. Strong bronze feet intercedes for us, glowing like a fire, is the light of the church, standing in the midst of the church itself. And then we get, <clears throat> we get this problem. So John saw all this, right? And then he fell down like he was dead. Because let's be honest, if that was you, would you do any different? If you saw that glowing, burning Jesus in all of his glory, would you be like, I can totally stand in front of this. Yeah, I'm good, Jesus. I don't need to bow down in front of you. There was not even like a, let me think about what I should do in this moment. John was like, I saw that and I fell down like I was dead. I imagine there was an instant like blood rushing from his head to his feet and out he went. White as, white as a sheet in front of the presence of the glory of the living God. But here's, here's the beautiful part about this. Um, John records that while he fell down as he was dead, Jesus extends his right hand, the one of power and authority and might. 
and he touches John. And he says, fear not. Now that's pretty cool. The living God touching you and saying, fear not. So get up, John, don't fear. Okay, I'm Jesus. We hung out. We're friends. We're cool. This is really me, but we're still good. Okay, Um, so fear not. I want you to remember something, John. I am the first and the last. I'm eternal. Don't forget that. Okay? I am the living one, meaning I died and in the process I destroyed death. And it's not a big deal anymore. So you don't have to fear, okay? And I hold the keys to death and to Hades, meaning sin and its consequences and the powers of evil in the world, meh, they're nothing to me. I have conquered them for all time, For all people, you have no reason to fear when you are with me and in my presence. And then Jesus continued, because I have authority over everything, I'm going to speak into the life of my church, the life of the world that I created, and the life of my people's hearts. And I want you to write down what I am about to show you. And I want you to get all the details on the page so that people who were not banished to the island of Patmos for preaching my name can see and hear and be blessed by the words I'm about to give you. So let's wrap this up. John is banished. He sees Jesus. Jesus says, I want you to write this stuff down and take it to all the people of the world. Let's start with the seven churches. They will represent the church universe. Christ is demonstrating his continual presence and ceaseless activity in the midst of the life of his church. Okay? Um, the midst of his people on earth. Bright and shining like the sun, he is the light of the church and upholds it with his strong right hand. Better use my right hand here. With, my, with his strong right hand. Um, I wrote something here, and I just want to make sure that I, I phrase this right, because I felt like when I was writing it, God wanted me to say it, so I don't want to butcher this. Um, it was not John's church. Okay. It was not Paul's church. Okay. It is not my church. And it is not your church. Can we just agree with that? Is it too easy to agree with that in theory? But it's hard to agree with that in practice. It was not Paul's church. It is not my church. It is not your church. Our wills don't, should not, will not determine the life and the course of the church. We don't stand in royal robes in the midst of the heavens, emblazed in glory. Jesus does, right? It's his church. He is the chief. He is the big boss of the church universal. The buck stops with him. All who believe of the local church, um, of the universal church, all who believe submit their authority to Jesus. We resign our will to his. In fact, he is the shepherd of this church, and I'm just the under-shepherd. So not even I, as the pastor, should get to determine the will of the church. It is Jesus who works through me and the leadership of the church that does that. And he is the authoritative, period, authoritative God, period, to speak into each individual person who has claimed his blood in their life, okay? So if you have claimed Jesus as your savior and his blood covers your sins, 
and you say, that's my God, then your will is under the authority of Jesus. Not over it, not equal to it, not constantly back and forth with, under the authority of Jesus. We must heed the words of this book, not just for the organized church as a whole, not just for the universal church across this world, not just for this local congregation, but we must heed the words of this church for our heart as well. Because we are the church. We are, as individual believers, the members of the body of Christ. He is the head over us. And what he says we will do and where he says we will go, we will go. And when he says stop, we will stop. And when he says, I know it seems crazy and reckless, but you're going to do it anyway. And I'm going to bless you and support you as you do my will. We will think it's crazy and reckless and we will run headlong into the will of God. Because he says so. We are never to discard what makes us uncomfortable when God says it. We are never to um, disagree with the word of God because you cannot disagree with Jesus and be right. Okay? That is, sometimes we just need to say it boldly. You cannot disagree with Jesus and still be right. So if there's a place in your life in which you want to go one way, and Jesus wants you to go another way, and you think, well, the word of God says, but God and I have it worked out, or I'm going to do it this time, you are not right. There is someone who speaks with greater authority than you to determine the course of your life and actions, and you are not right if you disagree with, go in an opposite direction in, challenge, say no, stomp your feet. You are not right. And it's not about being right, it's about being with Jesus, okay? You and Jesus are the best and strongest team. The only right response in the face of Jesus, the only fitting response to someone who has this kind of authority, unparalleled authority, no one on earth has this kind of authority, the only right response is the one that John had. And down on the ground we go. That's the only right response. But the beauty of this is we don't have death. Like John fell as if he were dead. But we know we don't have death because Jesus extends his right hand to us. And he says, fear not. I have an authoritative will and I'm going to exercise it in your life and for my glory and for your good eventually. Right? Because sometimes God wills for our life takes us to a place that is difficult and hard and challenging. But we are to go where he takes us. And we will find joy in the will of God. So my question for you is this. Over the next seven weeks, we will hear what God has to say to the seven churches, the universal church. And there will be things in these letters that you will hear and you will go, I don't want to hear this. I don't think this is talking about me. I will not receive this for my life. And you might not think it like that, but you're going to bristle at some of the ways in which God is going to talk to you over the course of the seven weeks. And the challenge for you is this, to remember that Jesus has complete authority to speak to your life. And the choice you must make is, will you or will you not listen to what he has to say, to hear it? And to act on it. And because of that, as John says, blessed is the one who reads the prophecy aloud, and blessed are those who hear and heed it. 
If you hear and heed the authoritative word of God in your life, you will experience the blessing, the right hand of God saying, fear not, I'm with you, come what may, God's got your back. That's where we want to be, right? We want to find ourselves smack dab in the middle of the will of God, covered by his cleansing blood, protected by his sovereign hand, encouraged to do challenging and difficult and good things for his kingdom's glory. And he's calling us to do that. But first, we must submit our own wills to his. And that's what we're going to do as we worship today. I'm going to close in prayer. We're going to worship God. And we are going to take some time to submit our will to his. And it's an active choice. You can't just be like, it sounds good. I like the idea of. You must actively choose to submit to God. And for some of you, it might be a physical response because I'm a tangible guy. I like to do things real. Um, There is something significant for me about kneeling because it shows I'm no longer standing. There's a physical action that goes with the internal thing. So if you want to kneel where you are, if you want to kneel up here, if you want to go to the back and kneel, if you want to stand, if you want to lay face down like John, I don't care. Let God lead you. But in some way, shape, or form, be sure this morning that you talk with God and you submit yourself to him. And if you don't know if you want to, challenge him to prove himself to be real to you. Because I guarantee you, he will walk in on an invite like that. You might not like what you see because it might mean that then you've got to submit yourself to an active and living God who might have different plans for your life than you do, but a promise will be better than anything you could ever imagine. So let's go ahead and pray, submit ourselves to God and worship. Lord. Your word speaks 100% true. And in it, we got painted this picture today of you. Um, Of you as you walked with John. Real life, flesh and blood. Deity, God, who came from heaven to die for the sins of the world, which means my sins, that I have done and am doing and will continue to do. And Lord, you've forgiven me of those things and made me clean and called me to live a holy life. And it says that with your right hand on my shoulder, fear not, I will help you live a holy life. And all you want from me is to submit my will to yours. And so Lord, this morning as we gather together as the church, but as individual believers within the church, we must say, as a church, we will follow you. However crazy it seems, wherever it takes us, we want to go where you're going. We never want to be found contradicting you or being the stubborn mule refusing to go. But Lord, in our own lives, we need to follow you as well. It's not just a corporate thing, it's an individual thing. You are a personal God who died for my personal sins and I must make a personal choice to follow you every day of my life. And so this morning, we give you permission to speak to us, to call us to ministry, to call us to service, to call us to boldness, to call us to salvation, to call us to holiness, to call us to a life lived recklessly in your name. Whatever it is you are going to speak into our lives, Lord, we will receive and say yes and amen. And then we will follow you. And we give you all the glory for that. As we worship you in song now, would you continue to work in our hearts, Father? Would you soften us? Would you speak to us? And would you put your hand, your strong right hand, on our shoulders and with authority say to each one of us, Fear not, I am with you. The first and the last, who was and is to is to come, 
I hold the keys to everything that ever causes you to fear, and I've locked it up and thrown it away, and then you can stand with me in my presence and do my will. We give you all the praise and all the glory, Father. In your holy, precious, and authoritative name, we pray. Amen.